Samuel says in 1 Samuel 7, 3, Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him alone, he will deliver you from the hands of the Philistines. They're still practicing idolatry in this time. They're right to ask the question, why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines? But they failed the theology test because they got the wrong answer to the question. They didn't get the right answer. So they come up with a strategy. That's found in verses 3 to 10. They have a strategy. Look at verse 3. Here's what we'll do in verse 3. Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. That it is not... It can be translated he or it, yes, but it's it in the context. It's talking about the Ark of the Covenant, not, not the Lord himself. Verse 4, so the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who sits above the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were, with, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great, great shout so that the earth resounded. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hand of those, these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews, as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. And the slaughter was very great, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. They have a, they're wondering, why have we been defeated? They think that they were defeated because they didn't carry the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them. That's, that's why we were defeated the first time around. We didn't carry the Ark of the Covenant in the battle with us. That's what we should have done. They never considered to look into their own hearts. They never thought that maybe we have a sin problem and maybe God's de defeating us because of that. They didn't think about that at all. There's no indication in verse 3 they even considered that idolatry might be in the way of victory in battle. Uh, they didn't take inventory of their spiritual condition. They didn't think about their spiritual condition at all. They just said, look, the problem is... We should have taken the ark. That's why we lost. But Matthew 6 says, uh, it says there, you cannot serve both God and mammon. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. What's it going to be? If the Lord demands our total allegiance. He doesn't want half of our allegiance going to him and the other half to some idolatrous, idolatrous pursuit, and that's what these guys are doing. We wonder why we live in constant defeat, and it's because of that. And so we need an honest evaluation of our hearts if we're straying from God. And the answer is not to come up with an excuse for our sin and, and blame it on something else and say, here's the reason things are not going for me like they should. We need to confess our sin, right? Israel didn't do that, though. They came up with another reason for their defeat, which showed their lack of spiritual discernment. They said, if only we'd carry the Ark of the Covenant into battle with us, then victory would be certain. Or as verse 3 says, let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. They didn't inquire of the Lord concerning this defeat. They didn't ask the Lord. Uh, they asked the question, but they never asked the Lord about why they were defeated. They didn't even seek the counsel of Samuel the prophet. He just disappeared off the scene. They didn't even look to him at all. 
even though he's being established as a prophet of the Lord, they just assumed that what they really needed for victory was the Ark of the Covenant. That was the missing element necessary for victory. So they decided to go to the Ark uh, to Shiloh and get the Ark of the Covenant. That's described for us. The Ark is, by the way, in Exodus 25. It talks about what it is. Just a regular, a rectangular-shaped box, not big. It's less than four feet long. It's two and a, half, two and a quarter feet high and two and a quarter feet wide. It's a wooden box. It's very simple. It's covered with gold, overlaid with gold. On the top, there are two cherubim with the wings touching each other. And, and this is what, is what you have here. Um, and it says there, the Lord of hosts sits above the cherubim. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was the visible sign of the presence of the Lord. It was the visible sign of the presence of the Lord. And he's called the, the Lord of hosts here in, in these verses, because, which means he's Lord over all. He's sovereign over all. So the Israelites felt like if they could get the Ark of the Covenant in the battle, they just couldn't fail, see? They thought they would have the Lord under obligation to deliver them from their enemy because his honor is at stake. He's under obligation to deliver them now. God's under pressure to get them to victory is what they felt like. They think they can reverse this defeat if they'll bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle. In other words, it's kind of like magic, right? Kind of like a magical thing. It's kind of like having a lucky rabbit's foot with you or maybe uh, people wear sometimes spiritual symbols uh, uh, to, to ward off the evil spirits. That's what they look at this as. They're trying to manipulate God by getting the sacred piece of furniture in the tabernacle and then bringing it to accomplish their goal. It's their goal trying, they're trying to accomplish. But they're not dealing with the real issue here at all. And the real issue is idolatry. Idolatry. They have not forsaken their idolatry. They're going to keep doing that. That's, they're not going to give that up. They're going to find another reason. And, and it, the problem is you can't practice idolatry and, and, and expect God to bless you at the same time. You're wanting God to bless you in battle, Israel did, and yet they're idolaters. And on top of that, guess who was in charge of the Ark of the Covenant? Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, those corrupt priests who were making a mockery of the offerings of God. These guys are in charge of it. Now, it's true that in Israel's history, the Ark of the Covenant had gone out with Moses when they left Mount Sinai, and it had gone with them. Uh, the Lord had used the ark for a means of protection and guidance for them. It says in Numbers 10:33, Thus they set off from the Mount of the Lord three days' journey with the ark of the covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them to seek out a resting place for them. So it was used during the time of Moses, and God wanted it to be used. They also used it in a military situation when Israel was trying to conquer in the land of Canaan. Remember in Joshua 6, they carried the ark around the city of Jericho. As they marched through that city, they carried the Ark of the Covenant with them. But still, it was the Lord who enabled them to win that victory. It wasn't the presence of the Ark itself that enabled them to win the victory. But in 1 Samuel 4, the elders think they can attain a victory like the one in Jericho if they'll just simply have the Ark, that wooden box with them, to carry with them. A sacred box, yes, but that's, that's their answer. There's only one problem here. They're not trusting in the Lord. They're trusting in the Ark of the Covenant. That's what they're doing. And if you're going to get the Ark of the Covenant, you're going to also going to get the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, because it's a package deal. So here's what you have. Here's the scenario. You've got idolaters who have a wrong understanding of God, who have a misunderstanding of the Ark, coupled with corrupt priests who are under the condemnation of God, going out into battle, thinking that their victory is assured because they have the Ark of the Covenant with them. That's a recipe for disaster right there. 
In verse 5, it looks like they're trying to even imitate the war cry that took place in the Battle of Jericho. Remember how at Jericho in Joshua 6, the people shouted as they went around the city? Well, here it says the same thing. They shout with a great shout. In verse 6, the Philistines realize the Ark of the Covenant has come into, has entered the picture, and they're, and they're fearful. They're afraid. It says the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. Woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened before. And so the Philistines are scared out of their wits. They're frightened. So in verse 8, in verse 8 we see why they're so afraid. It's because they knew something about the history of Israel. The Philistines knew something about the history of Israel, taking some history lessons there. And being polygamists, in other words, being people that worship many gods, they were worried about Israel's gods, they say here. Even though Israel only had one god, we know that from the scripture, Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And, of course, we know from our study of the scriptures that this Lord who is one reveals himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But the Philistines didn't understand the doctrine of God. They didn't understand all that. Not to mention the fact that when they saw Israel, they lived right near Israel, when they saw them, Israel had become a land of idolatry. And so they saw them worshiping gods all over the place, and they assumed, I'm sure, they assumed, well, they worship a bunch of gods just like we do. Isn't that sad when people, uh, Christians, act just like the world, and the world can't tell the two apart? They, they can't tell the difference. I'm not so real, sure, real sure who had the worst understanding of theology here. Was it the Philistines or the Israelites? Both of them seemed to have a, a problem. But although the Philistines understood, the, they misunderstood the doctrine of God, they well understood the power of God. It says that in the chapter here. They knew what happened to the Egyptians. They knew about the plagues uh, that had taken place. By the way, in Exodus 15, in the Song of Moses, it says that other the surrounding countries, like Philistines, like Moab, like Ammon, they all heard about what happened in Egypt when it happened, and they were all frightened and dismayed, it says, and they were trembling even because of what God had done there. And so the Philistines knew about all this. They knew about the plagues that God had sent to Egypt, and so they're afraid. Well, what can they do? They're, they're going to battle, right? And so they decide to man up. Verse 9, take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you're going to become slaves of the Hebrews. The foreign peoples use that word to describe Israelites as Hebrews oftentimes. You're going to become their slaves as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight, man up. So they go to battle, right? And far from succeeding in battle like Israel thought they would do, they go down to uh, tremendous defeat, tremendous defeat. And so great is this slaughter that 30,000 people died, 30,000 people. Think about that for a minute. And if you're keeping score, by the way, that's two battles so far, Philistines 2, Israel 0. Philistines have no recorded losses at this point. Israel has 34,000 recorded losses in two battles. They're not doing too good so far. This military strategy they come up with turned out to be a complete failure. They are defeated twice now. And what Israel didn't consider was just because they had the ark of the Lord in their possession and going to battle doesn't mean that God was going to deliver them in the battle. One person said this, if God will defeat for his people, a thousand arks would not bring success. They missed the point completely. The ark of God was sacred, yes, consecrated as a sacred piece of furniture in the, ark, in, the, in the tabernacle. Yes, it was. But it didn't have some magical power in and of itself. 
and it didn't exist so people could use this like some kind of a genie in a bottle. That's not what this is all about. They think they can use this piece of furniture to accomplish their own ends. The Ark of the Covenant was there to serve the purpose of God during its time, and it did. Now, Hebrews chapter 9 talks about the furniture in the tabernacle, and it says in Hebrews 9, verse 1, it says, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread, this is called the holy place. Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded in the, in the tables of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And so you have these, it talks about the, ta- the furniture in the, in the tabernacle at that time. And that was a good thing. It was, it was something that was, that was sanctified by God, this furniture. And in its place, it was good and proper and right under the first covenant was not something that was wrong. That's how God did things then. He used this at this time period in history. But then it says in, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal, eternal redemption. Those sacred things of the tabernacle, those pointed to the substance later on. They were symbols. They pointed to the substance later on, which was Christ himself. Christ was the one that came. That Christ is the only one that can save from sin. He's, the only, he's our true salvation. Salvation is not in an object. It's not in something you can do or your works. It's in a person. It's in Christ alone. And that's what this all pointed to. And the failure of, the, of Israel to win in battle was... Not a failure, not some inherent flaw in the Ark of the Covenant. The flaw was in their understanding of God and of the Covenant and of the things of God. They didn't understand these things, and of the Lord himself even. We can't manipulate God to come to our aid when we're in trouble and need his help and we're living in a life that's totally the opposite of what he wants. We're living in rebellion against him and we want him to come to our aid. Do you think it's going to happen? He says, no, you get on my side. You come to Christ. Christ saves you from your sin. Then you're, on, then you're in God's side. You're on his team. This, this is not how it works like these guys were trying to do it. This rectangular box didn't possess some magical power somehow. It's not how it was. The power comes from God who sits above the cherubim, who's stationed above them. The power for victory militarily or spiritually or anyway comes from the Lord, not from some object. There's many people that worship object, objects all over the world, sacred objects they call them. It will get no one anywhere at all. It's, it's the Lord who has the power. The ark, again, was the visible sign of the, pre, of the invisible presence of God, right? Israel misunderstood that. And by the way, it wouldn't be the only time in their history they misunderstood this. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah 7. We'll read verses 1 through 4. Yes, there is a connection here between Jeremiah 7 and 1 Samuel 4. Jeremiah 7, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. You're coming into the temple to worship the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Well, go down to verse 9. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then you come, well, you're living this way. Then you come and stand before me in this house, this temple, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, that you may do all these abominations. Has this house, which, was, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. Now, what's happening here? In Jeremiah 7, the people are, de- are guilty of all kinds of evil, as you can see through the chapter here. Guilty of all kinds of evil. They're told to repent of their evil, amend their ways, do what God wants you to do, get right with God. Because God, in the book of Jer- Jeremiah, prophesies again and again, I'm going to send you into, I'm going to send a nation against you, Babylon. They're going to destroy Jerusalem. They're going to destroy the temple. They're going to destroy everything. And they're going to take you into captivity for 70 years. Well, guess what? The people didn't believe it. And the other... And they, were, they kept mocking Jeremiah and persecuting him, and they wouldn't believe it. And he said, it's going to happen. And they said, no, we don't believe that. They thought this. This is the temple of the Lord. They say it three times in verse, uh, verse 4. Uh, God's not going to let that happen to his country, his land, that he's, he's separated from the world. He's not going to let that happen to his temple. This is the temple of God. He's going to protect his temple. No harm will come to it at all. And so they put their confidence in this building. We're safe here. We can live like we want to. We can do whatever we want to. We can sin like we want to. It doesn't really matter. We've got the temple. Uh, we've got where God's people, His chosen people. Nothing's going to happen to us. This talk about Babylon coming, not going to happen. And so they didn't worry about all that. They said, this is the temple of the Lord. We're going to find protection here. Now, the temple of the Lord was sacred, yes. It was set apart to God. The Ark of the Covenant was sacred, yes. But neither one could save anyone in and of themselves because they weren't trusting the Lord at all. They were trusting in sacred objects. And then there's an interesting passage in Jeremiah 7, verse 12, where the, the, Jeremiah reminds them of a place that existed long ago, back in 1 Samuel. Look at verse 12. Uh, he says here, But now go to my place, which was in Shiloh. Wait a minute. Shiloh is where we are in 1 Samuel. That's the time period we're in where it's talking about the, the temple that exists, the uh, tabernacle actually that existed in shiloh that's what he's talking about back in the days of the judges and in the time of first samuel he says uh go to my place which is in shiloh let's go back in history and think about this for a minute go to my place in shiloh where i made my name dwell at first that's where god's house was at first before it got to jerusalem later on and see what i did to it see what i did to shiloh because of the wickedness of my people israel were, they, were the people wicked in 1 Samuel? Yeah, they're practicing idolatry. God says, see, see what I did to that, that place back then. Verse 13, now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord. And I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, sending the prophets probably what he means by that. You did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer. Verse 14, therefore I will do to, do to the house which is called by my name, this temple now that's existed in Jeremiah's time, in which you trust, you trust in this temple and in the place which I gave you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. He says, I'm going to do it to you what I did to Shiloh. Many, Shiloh was destroyed. Nobody knows exactly when. Many think it was in the 11th century uh, B.C., the time of when 1 Samuel is taking place that we're talking about. Uh, many think it, it happened then. 
now, 1 Samuel 4 doesn't say anything about the destruction of, of Shiloh at all, but it happened. And Shiloh is never mentioned again as a place of worship after 1 Samuel chapter 4. By the way, Psalm 78 confirms this destruction of the temple or the tabernacle at Shiloh. Psalm 78, verse 60 and following says this, God abandoned the dwelling place at Shiloh, the tent which he had pitched among men and gave up his strength to captivity and his glory into the hand of the adversary. Many think that the Philistines overran the tabernacle in Shiloh in 1 Samuel 4. Whenever it happened, it happened by somebody during this time period. In fact, even archaeologists have confirmed the destruction at Shiloh in the 11th century because they discovered that it was burned by fire in that time. And that falls in the time period which we're studying in 1 Samuel. So Israel trusted in the Ark of the Covenant and they trusted in the temple while neglecting to trust in the Lord. Is what they didn't do. And this idea of trying to harness the power of God to accomplish their own means, which is what they were doing there, it's not, confined, it's not confined to the Old Testament. It's elsewhere in the Scriptures as well. How about Simon, the magician in Acts chapter 8? In Acts chapter 8, Simon allegedly became a believer, it says. It says he became a believer. He was amazed as he watched the, the, the apostles perform miracles because he was a magician formerly. And so he saw the apostles performing these miracles. He thought, wow, what great power. If I could only have that power in my possession. And he watched them... Uh, lay hands on people. The apostles would lay hands on people and the Spirit would come upon them in Acts chapter 8. And Simon wanted that power. And so it says in Acts chapter 8, so he offered the apostles money. Think about this for a minute. He offered the apostles money and he said, give me this power, this authority as well, so that everyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Well, you can imagine Peter's reaction to that, right? A tongue lashing. He, 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 he just cuts no corners and he says this, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part nor portion in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, what's the answer? Repent of this wickedness of yours. That's the answer. Repent of this wickedness of yours. Same answer that should have been in 1 Samuel chapter 4 and in Jeremiah chapter 7 and any other time this happened. And it doesn't just stop in the Bible. You'll find the same thing happening in church history again and again. There's an untold number of claims by people who say that they have pieces of the cross, of the cross of Christ they have in their possession, that they have these pieces and it becomes like a, a, a rabbit's foot to them. There's countless bones of saints that have been collected in Rome that people claim, oh, this is the bones of the Apostle Peter. I think there's so many bones it could make like, I don't know how many Apostle Peters more than one. There's all kinds of religious, religious relics in Rome that people trust in. Martin Luther wondered how it was possible, as people claim, for 26 apostles to be buried in Germany when the Bible only talked about 12 of them, and they weren't buried in Germany either. And, and so, but this, this kind of stuff has always taken place. The Catholic Church sold indul what they called indulgences back in centuries ago. Those were papers from the Catholic Church that if people have people bought them, gave money to the Catholic Church so they could make money, they bought them, then the time of their, the time of their relatives spent in purgatory would be lessened because they bought these papers called indulgences. And so you have all these methods, these means that people are trying to teach other people to put their, something, their faith in something other than God and Christ, put it in something else. Ways to manipulate God uh, by... Uh, 
you're carrying out the will of the people. You know, it was recorded. I remember when Frank Sinatra died. I read an article in the paper that said that Frank Sinatra had given hundreds of thousands of dollars to the Catholic Church prior to his death because he wanted to ensure his interest in the heaven. So he gave it to the Catholic Church. This is always taking place constantly in our world today. Even Nazi Germany wasn't immune to this. Do you know that the soldiers in Nazi Germany, each soldier, uh, they were issued a belt with the, the words in German on the belt, and on the belt it said, God is with us. Do you think God was with the Nazi army of Germany? They thought, they, they thought he was. And so this they, it takes place constantly, this kind of thing. We put our, stuff, our, our, our faith in superstitious things. You say, well, we don't have any spiritual superstitions here. This is the Grace Bible Church of Tampa, right? We believe in the scriptures here. We don't believe in superstition. We don't try to harness the power of God for our own means. But it can be done in many ways. Think about this for a minute. And think about ways that maybe you're not even aware of. Some people think that if they pray the sinner's prayer after somebody else, it just might give them the spiritual insurance they need to get into heaven if there actually is a heaven, if there is one that exists. And people trust for years after that and that prayer they prayed. Even though they never come to church, they never repent of their sins, they never turn to God, they never show interest in the things of God at all, they're banking on that prayer they prayed because they're, they're under this delusion. Some people think that if they tithe, they're automatically guaranteed the blessings of God financially upon their life because they gave 10% of their income. They think that. Now, I do think that God's going to take care of people who give to him. I do think that. However, if you're not walking in fellowship with God, you're living a life in opposition to him, it doesn't matter what you give. He's not going to bless you necessarily. He might, but he's, he certainly doesn't have to. He's not obligated to bless you. Let's put it that way. The church may feel they're being blessed by God because they were a small church and then they grew to be a large church and then they got to be a mega church and they think, wow, God's blessing us. Look, at we have thousands of people at our church now. But that doesn't mean they did things God's way. It doesn't mean they did things according to the word of God at all. It could just mean that they're good at business practices, good at management practices. They might have been successful in business because of how they do things. But they think it's a sure sign of God's blessing, but not necessarily. And I know of there's believers who think that they get away from God and they get tired of being, you know, they, they get away from God and their whole life falls apart and they lose everything and they're tired of being a failure and they want to be a success and they want to get things back to where they used to be and so they say, let's go back to the Lord and they come back to the Lord supposedly and things don't turn out for them like they thought they would. And God doesn't come through for them like they thought he should. Because they don't repent of their sins. They don't get right with God. They're just trying to get the blessing, see? And we've seen that happen here, and they become apostate after that. They leave the faith again. And so uh, there's so many things like this. People don't address the real issue in their life of repentance of sin. But they're going to use God. They're going to use spiritual things. They're going to use religion as a way to get what they want. And it happens all the time. And there are many things like this. We, we, we try to twist God's arms to get what we want, by using his power, right? But the Lord's not, not going to be manipulated by us. He's not going to be controlled by us. He's the Lord of hosts. Remember that? The sovereign Lord over all. He's over all things. So Israel's foolish strategy brought them under the judgment of God. They're a nation under judgment. And then, secondly, there's a family under judgment in verses 11 to 20. A family under judgment. The nation was under judgment of God. We know that. But it was led by a priestly family who was under the judgment of God as well. 
These, this whole thing is going down the drain completely. There was no strong leadership to guide them, spiritual leadership, to guide the people of Israel. And we saw in chapter 2 that a prophet had condemned Eli's family. And we saw in chapter 3 that Samuel had gotten a revelation from God and he had confirmed that condemnation of Eli's family. And so we know judgment's coming, right, to Eli. We know it's, ha- it's going to happen. And it happens in chapter 4. Now, here's the description of this blow by blow, okay? First of all, the ark of God is captured. Verse 11 says, The ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hothni and Phinehas, died. The ark of God is captured. Well, so much for their plan to use the ark of God, right? They lost the battle with the ark of God. And now, the ark of God itself is taken by the Philistines. The enemy captures the ark of God as a spoil of battle. And, they take, and they're probably pretty excited because guess what they think? They think they've got the power now. They think they've got it in their possession now. And so great things are going to happen for them, they think. And that's how, that's how they would see it, I'm sure. But as we've already seen, the power is in God, not in the ark. So the ark of God is captured. And then secondly, the sons of Eli die, as it says in verse 11. By the way, that was predicted in chapter 2, verse 34. Remember that? 2.34 said, This will be the sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die, it says. And then in chapter 3, verse 13, For I have told Eli what I am about to, I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. Hophni and Phinehas are like a lot of people. They think they can thumb their noses up at God and that they can live any way they want to and they can make a mockery of God. They can shake their fist in, in God, at God's face and that they can do whatever they want to and get away with it. But that's not how it works. Judgment's coming for people like that. People that have that mentality, God will bring his judgment upon them. And so they die, the sons of Eli, in this battle. And then Eli himself dies. Look at verse 12. Now a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came, behold, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road eagerly watching because his heart was trembling for the ark of God. So the man came to tell it in the city and all the city cried out. When Eli heard the voice of the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the noise of this commotion mean? Then the man came and hurriedly and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so he could not see. He was blind. The man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And he said, how, do things go? how did things go, my son? Then the one who brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great slaughter among the people. And your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been taken. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backward beside the, the, the gate, and his neck was broken. And he died, for he was old and heavy. Thus, he judged Israel 40 years. Well, this guy from the, runs from the tribe of Benjamin, of all tribes, which has been nearly exterminated at the end of Judges, comes out of the battle scene, nearly a, runs nearly a marathon. It's thought that the battle was 20 to 22 miles away from Shiloh. He runs the distance. He, his clothes are torn. There's dust on his head, which are traditional signs of grief and mourning in Israel. He's got, obviously, just by looking at him, you can tell this guy's got some bad news for us. Things are not looking good. And Eli's doing what he, did, what, he did, what he did when we first met him in chapter 1, verse 9. He's sitting on his seat. He's sitting on his seat. Now, that's not just any chair or any seat, as we told you earlier. That's a seat. That's, the word seat there means a seat of honor. 
He's a judge of Israel. He's the high priest of Israel. He's sitting in the seat of honor. And apparently, this seat has been moved, as best I can determine, to the roadside so he can get news of the battle. He's watching eagerly, it says. He's, he's actually blind, but he's eager to find out what was happening. So he's out there as close as he can get to get the news as soon as he can get. What's his concern, though? He's worried about the Ark of God. It's away from the tabernacle. It's, the Ark of God is supposed to be in the tabernacle, housed in the Holy of Holies. As a general rule, it's away from there now. It's not supposed to be away from there. This is a dumb plan these guys came up with. And guess who it's in the hands of? Two incompetent people, his sons, Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. And he's worried. Justifiably so, right? He's worried about the Ark. Is it going to come back? What's happening? So Eli, Eli hears the, the people of the city cry out when they hear the bad news. When this messenger comes in, he tells the people. and He hears them cry out, and he's thinking, oh, no, this isn't good at all. What does this noise mean? What does this commotion mean? He couldn't see, but he didn't need to. He could hear, and it didn't sound good at all to him. Something's wrong. And in verse 17, the messenger tells Eli of Israel's defeat, of his sons being dead, and the capture of the ark of God. Now, he heard all this. But when he heard about the ark of God being taken, that's when he reacted. That's when he fell off his seat backward and broke his neck and died because it says he was old and heavy. His sons were not his main concern here, it appears. His main concern was the ark of God has been taken. And so there's this short epitaph in the verse, and it says he judged Israel 40 years. And that's it. We have nothing more about Eli, no, nothing to say about the guy. He's not concerned about his son's welfare. He's concerned about the ark of God, and he falls over backwards and dies. So another judge of Israel dies, who seems to be in the line of the other judges of Israel. Not all that great, right? And then finally, Eli's grandson is born. Verses 19 and 22, it says in verse 19, his daughter-in-law Phineas' wife was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken, that her father-in-law and her husband died, had died, she kneeled down and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she called the, name, she called the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God was taken, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God was taken. Now the shock of all this bad, bad news drove... Uh, Phineas, Phineas's wife, the daughter-in-law of Eli, into uh, premature labor. She went into labor, and she gave birth to a son. But the birth of that son brought her no joy at all. In fact, she, as she was dying, she named him Ichabod, which means something like, where's the glory? Or maybe no glory. Or something like that. It's kind of hard to determine exactly, but the idea is the glory's gone, okay? No glory left. She's suffering greatly. She hears about the news of her father-in-law dying, her husband dying, but she's primarily troubled about the ark of God, the ark of the covenant, because she repeats her statement in verse 22. She says, the glory is departed from Israel, for the ark of God was taken. That seems to be her biggest concern. Now, this word departed means to go into exile. The ark of God, as far as they were concerned, went into exile and maybe never returning. The Lord had filled his tabernacle with his glory but now that glory was gone. And so in the mind of Phineas's wife, she figured the Lord must be gone too. He's left our land. So she dies a hopeless woman. 
Now, what a contrast between the birth of Ichabod and the birth of Samuel, right? As you look back on chapter 1 and 2. And you think about how Hannah prayed for the godly Hannah prays for a child. She, God answers her prayer. She's given a child. She thanks God for the child. She dedicates Samuel to the Lord. However, the wife of Phineas, who's able to conceive, no problem at all, she dies in misery and unhappiness and no joy or praise on her lips at all, just in hopelessness. Now, there's a word repeated in this chapter five times. It's very important. That's the word taken. It's got to do, it's used in reference to the ark. Notice verse 11. It says the ark was taken. Verse 17, the ark of God has been taken. Verse 19, the ark of God was taken. Verse 21, the ark of God was taken. Verse 22, the ark of God was taken. This day is one of the lowest points in all the history of Israel because the ark of God has been taken. It's gone into exile. It's departed. It's gone. In one day, think about this, in one day, the baby Ichabod, born here, loses his grandfather. He's deprived, he's an orphan now, he's deprived of his grandfather, his uncle, his mother, his father, no one left. And worst of all, Israel is deprived of the ark of the Lord. Because, and the ark of the Lord symbolized the presence and the glory of God. And now that ark is gone. And his name says it all, doesn't it? Ichabod, no glory. No glory left now. The ministry of Eli and his sons had ended. And the priestly family, by the way, this priestly family had brought no glory to God in their lifetime, right? And so God's glory departed from them. And this is how things have been going for a long time in Israel. Now, when we look at this, this, this passage here, this section of Scripture, chapters 2 through 4 especially, should serve as a warning to us. The people who, what, what can happen to people who seek to abuse God's person and misuse his person? And dishonor his person. Think about this for a minute. In chapter 2, the sons of Eli dishonored the Lord by despising his offerings, right? In chapter 2 and 3, Eli dishonors the Lord by honoring his sons above the Lord, it says. Chapter 4, the elders of Israel dishonor the Lord by putting their confidence in the Ark of the Covenant instead of the Lord of the Ark of the Covenant. All these people dishonoring the Lord. The only one to honor the Lord here was Hannah and Samuel and their family, it seems like. Our purpose here as our church and in your life should always be to honor and glorify the Lord and to glorify his person. And we'll close with 1 Samuel 2.30. 1 Samuel 2.30, a great verse to summarize this whole thing. It says there, God says, Those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Let's make sure that all we do here, the focal point of all we do here is always to honor and glorify the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this time together, for your word again. And we pray we would be among those who would honor you in all that we do, uh, seeking to put off anything that would dishonor you, uh, seeking to be uh, a repentant of of all that we need to be, uh, that we would honor you in, in every way possible, honor your word, honor Christ, exalt him in all that we do. We pray that our church would be all about that. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.